Today is the day where we are ending our sermon series on the life of David entitled After God's Own Heart. And so after this week, we're going to enter into the season of Advent. So please, people, my annual plea, do not skip over Advent to to Christmas. And when we get to Christmas, there's 12 days of Christmas. So enjoy all 12 of those days. But don't skip the season of waiting, you know. They talk about the war on Christmas. The war on Advent has been much more successful. So uh, let's bring Advent back. And, And Advent is the season of waiting where we, we, we anticipate the promises that we see in the Bible of, of a savior and a king. And I think that this series about David really dovetails nicely with, with, with Advent, because really this series has been preparing us for that. Because in seeing David at his, at his best and at his worst, uh, we've seen that though David is a king after God's own heart, what we really need is a king with God's own heart. And so right now we, we've skipped a lot from David's life, a lot of the ugly stuff. We saw sort of the David's fall from grace with David and Bathsheba. We spent two weeks on that, the, 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 the ugly stuff. But, but it, it sort of goes from bad to worse in David's life and, and his reign. But here we're, we're skipping to the end. And so for everything that David did, for all that we can say, about him for all of his failures and his successes at least here at the end of first chronicles david finishes well and the thing about david is that he's so important that his story is told twice in scripture first in first and second samuel and then here in the book of first chronicles and so at the end of david's life he shows us what it means to leave a legacy And so we're going to look at four things related to this. First, there's David's problem. Then there's David's response to this problem. And then there's David's invitation and David's prayer. So David's problem, David's response, David's invitation, and David's prayer. And really, what all of this is going to be about is something that we've just, we've been focusing on as a congregation, and and we've just kind of, we're wrapping it up, but, but it's this concept of stewardship. And so if I were to pick one passage from the Bible to, to present a theology of stewardship from it, it would be First Chronicles 29. And this text is just so rich with a wealth of insights that we get to mine together this morning. But before talking about that, I have to be honest that talking about stewardship, specifically talking about money, it used to be one of my least favorite things. As a pastor, in fact, I hated it so much that I never did it. Because talking about it feels so self-serving. You know, everyone knows that, that when you're the pastor and you're talking about money and give that money to God and, oh, by the way, give it to this church. And, oh, by the way, my salary is the largest expenditure in the budget of this church. It seems sort of self-dealing, right? That you're wrapping self-interest in this sort of pious platitudes. But really, everyone can see right through that. And so they think that you're kind of self-dealing or a greedy huckster. So I think, well, if I just don't talk about it, then no one will think that about me. And another reason I, I hated talking about stewardship was I was like, I don't want to put a guilt trip on people or, or try to manipulate them. And the reality of the situation is that, you know, the average American Christian gives a little bit more than 2% of their after-tax income to all charitable causes, including um, including their church. And so this is, you know, of course, this is a far cry from the 10%, the tithe that we see in Scripture. So, you know, what do you do with the gap between the sort of 
the ideal and the reality. And there's a big yawning gap between those two things. What do you do? And so instead of seeing this as an opportunity for growth, I said, well, if, if, if the ideal and reality don't line up, then it's a lost cause. Keep your mouth shut. But that's all sort of masking for the real reason that I hated talking about stewardship, and it was my secret worry that I would do my best. I would give the most pastorally sensitive and theologically sound appeal, you know, of, of what God ha- would have us to be as generous people, as stewards of the gifts that he's given us, and then I would do that, and I would give it my best shot, and the response would be this great big thud. And I was worried about what that would say about sort of the people of the congregation, but more so what that would say about me. That I had failed in some sense. And so, you know, the best way to never fail at something? Don't try. It's a very, it's a very important and dark life lesson that too many, of, too many of us have learned too well in too many areas of our lives. If you don't try, you can't fail. If you don't play the game, you cannot lose. But I realized this was... This was not healthy. This was not good. I got this group in, in fall 2016, this group called the Stewardship 2020 team together. And ostensibly it was to study this issue of stewardship, but basically it was to get a group of people around me to help me confront my fears. And that was where I experienced really, I, I would call it the greatest, one of my greatest breakthroughs as a pastor in all the eight years that I've been doing this now. And, and that stewardship is not something to be afraid of, but it, it, there is so much joy at the end when we get it right. And so I'm grateful for that breakthrough. I get to stand here before you this morning, and I'm not afraid about saying the wrong thing about money, but instead I'm excited to share with you the freedom that comes from the joy of knowing that when we practice stewardship well, when we get it, good things happen in our souls. Good things happen in our walks with Christ. So it's in that spirit this morning, the spirit of joy and freedom that I preach to you today on this passage, and I invite you to listen in that same spirit as well. All right, so first, uh, there's David's problem. And so here's the context. These are David's last words. By the end of 1 Chronicles 29, David is going to be dead. So these are his last things that he's going to say. And, and he's already chosen a successor uh, for his, his, his throne, for his rule. And that's going to be his son, Solomon, the son of Bathsheba. He's going to be the successor. And at the end of his reign, David can look back and say, I have accomplished a lot of things. He's really the first true king over the united tribes of of Israel. Saul has sort of been like a chieftain, but David was a king. He brought everyone together under this united monarchy. And these these weren't just 12 disparate tribes anymore. They were a nation. And they had a capital in Jerusalem and and a center for worship in Jerusalem. And and Jerusalem is still the center of, of Jewish faith and Jewish imagination. And David is responsible for that. He brought everything together in Jerusalem. And he's built a palace for himself. But the one thing he hadn't done is build a palace for God, a a temple. And so worship of God still takes place in this thing called the tabernacle. It's like a sort of like a circus tent, you know, that you can move from place to place to place. And it was built for a time when God's people were nomads, when they were wandering in the wilderness. But David says, well, we're rooted now. We're rooted in Jerusalem. There's not going to be any more wandering here and there. It's all going to take place in Jerusalem, and so we don't have to have a tent anymore. This isn't going to be a temporary operation anymore. So we might as well build a house for God, a temple for God, right here 
in Jerusalem, a permanent place, a permanent home. And God says, okay, I'm fine with having a temple in Jerusalem. Don't be mistaken, I, I can't be contained in this one place, but I'm fine having worship centralized there. But David, you're not going to be the one who builds it. I'm not okay with that because there's too much blood on your hands to have you be the one who can build this house for me. But I'll let your son Solomon, he, I give him permission, he can be the one to build it. So this is David's problem. He's at the end of his life. He's going to die. And he has to leave this work to his son Solomon, who is young and inexperienced. David knows about building things. He knows about leading projects and leading armies. David can get stuff done. And here he is facing the greatest unfinished work of his life, and he's leaving it in the hands of his son Solomon, who doesn't know anything about anything. David says in verse 1, My son is young and inexperienced, and the work is great. Right? David's problem is that the horizon of his dream is much more expansive and, and broader than the horizon of his own life. Right? David's problem is that he wants to build something of eternal significance, but he's just a mere mortal. David's problem is the problem that we all have, and that's the problem of our limitations, of our mortality. The one thing that none of us has enough of is time. David's God-sized vision is contained in a very human-sized package. And so there's a couple things I want to touch on here with this problem. And the first is the importance of having a vision, a big vision, a vision that's as vast as the kingdom. In the Proverbs it says, where there is no vision, people perish. And so that David has a problem, that's a good thing. David's problem is born from the fact that he has this great vision of something that he wants to do for God. That his life's goal is about far more than just establishing a dynasty for his family. It's, it's about more than military or professional or financial success. David wants to build a palace for the Lord God. And he wants to build what will become for the people really the nexus, the, the intersecting point between heaven and earth. That's a big, hairy, audacious goal if there ever was one. And I think of David's dreams. I look at David's dreams and I think of how small most of the time my dreams are. You know, I want to have a successful church. I want to be financially secure. I want to be able to go on, you know, some decent vacations and retire someday, have my kids be happy and, and healthy. Those aren't bad things. But they're not enough. They're, they're, they're nowhere close to enough. And so when we see David's problem that is born from having a big vision, one thing we can pray is, God, expand my vision, right? So that, that my life isn't about, you know, being, building a church, but being a, a leader in a movement of God's people to impact this city and this culture and this world that I wouldn't, that I wouldn't be satisfied with, you know, a, a few more butts in the pews and, and bucks in the plate and, and I would say, no, 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 that, that, that 
that I get to be a leader in a community whose mission is, is leading this charge against the gates of hell. That's what Jesus said to Peter when he said, you know, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell won't prevail against it. I heard uh, John Ortberg, who's the pastor of Menlo Park Presbyterian Church in the Bay Area, say once that the church is in the business, right, of leading this charge against the gates of hell of anything that would separate us from God or deface or debase his image in his children. That's a big vision. Right, so David's problem ought to be our problem. We, we all ought to have a vision that is bigger than our own lives. So his problem, David does have this problem. His vision is bigger than his life. And he cannot guarantee the outcome of what he wants to see happen. He is leaving this great dream in the hands of his inexperienced and untested son. So that leads to David's response to this problem. What is he going to do about this? David's not going to be there. His vision is bigger than his life. So what do you do about that? And so when faced with the prospect of his own mortality and finitude, David focuses not on pouring resources into extending his own life, but leaving a legacy for God. If you look at, you know, some of this stuff that comes out of Silicon Valley now, people basically like trying to live forever. It's sort of this grotesque parody of what it means to leave a legacy. And so if we have dreams that are going to be, take beyond our lifetimes to accomplish, the solution is not to try to live longer to fulfill them. You know, if we get the technology and medicine right, you know, maybe we can go 100, 110 years of some decent quality of life. But that's just at the margins. That's not... That's not anywhere near enough. And so the solution to this problem is don't extend your life into the future, but extend your resources into a future that doesn't include you. Place bricks in the wall of a castle that you will never inhabit. In fact, fill storehouses with bricks that you won't even get to place in the wall. That's what it means to leave a legacy. It means building for something and towards something that does not and will not include you. It's not for you. Or some of the greatest marvels of human civilization are the Gothic cathedrals of Europe. I've never been, but I know many of you out there have. And, and it's remarkable when you know that these would take over well over 100 years to finish. I mean, even the, the Cathedral Church of St. John the Divine in uh, New York City on the... Uh, on the west side, upper west side, it's been being built. It's a modern church. It's been being built. It's not finished yet. It's over 100 years. And so you think of medieval Europe, and this is going to take well over 100 years to finish this Gothic cathedral. And imagine that you're a laborer, and you're building one of those cathedrals. And especially at this time, your average adult, if you made it past childhood, 50 was old. And so you know that even if you live a full, long life, you would never see your work finished. You were building and laboring on this monument, this towering monument to God's glory. But for you, it was just a dream. It was drawings on the architect's parchment. But they gave what they had and they entrusted their work to God and the next generation. So the solution to the problem that God's kingdom is so much bigger than us is to give with the eye to providing the next generation with what they need to continue the mission of God and the work of God into the future. Because the truth is, we're all standing on the shoulders of giants. 
We're in this place because people gave to build not just for themselves, but the future generations of Christians in Minneapolis. And many of us came to faith at places like camps that were the result of faithful giving with an eye towards future generations. And we've been to schools and some of us to seminaries where folks have poured out their resources in order to leave a legacy. The, the, the best parts of our culture and its institutions are all gifts we have inherited. That's why when we think about our own giving within our cooperative ministry here, 10% of that goes beyond the walls of this church, at least 10% of it. Because we recognize that we have got to put our money where our faith is. That we've got to give beyond our immediate needs and wants and experience if we want to be faithful stewards. So David's problem is my vision is bigger than my life. His solution is I'm going to invest in a future that doesn't include me. And then David gives and he gives lavishly. Laura read that list of of stone and of precious jewels and of precious metals. I mean, this was an immense donation that David gave. But the giving doesn't stop with David. After those truly, I mean, extravagant sums of materials that David gives towards the building of the temple, David gives an invitation. In verse 5, he says to the leaders of the people now, who is willing to consecrate themselves to the Lord today? So stewardship is not a solitary act. It's a, it's a communal discipline that invites other people to participate in it because if we are going to build something great for God and if we're going to leave a legacy of a future for God's people, we've got to do it together. We're better together. Right? That's one of the beauties of doing cooperative ministry here is we, we get to live this out. We, we get to join together to leave a legacy for Christ in South Minneapolis and knowing we cannot do this alone. We will not make it. You know, just a couple of years ago, Aldrich, it was how are we going to maintain our support of our missionaries, take care of the building, pay the pastor? How can we do these things? And trust me, we're not leading a young church plant. There were months where the contribution that Amy and I gave was about literally 90% of what came in. And that was not saying much at all. And so alone, having a vibrant, thriving Christ, gospel, discipleship, community, mission-focused congregation was impossible. But when we joined our resources together, like David and the leaders of the people, we found out that what was impossible alone was more than possible together. And that's one of the most challenging and encouraging truths I think I see in this passage is, is that we already have the resources we need here to do what God would have for us. We already have the talent, the treasure, the testimony, the spiritual gifts to do what God would have us do. We've just got to combine them together toward a common purpose. Alone, we cannot do much at all. But together, together, there is no telling what God can do through us. One of the reasons we do this stewardship campaign thing is, is we want to encourage, spur this kind of generosity from one another to send the message that we aren't alone in this, but we're building something together. One of the, the, the great words in the Bible is koinonia. It's a Greek word. It often gets translated as fellowship or community. And it's, so it's people gathering around a common purpose or, or a common cause. 
But in Greek, it's also a word that basically means a joint business venture, what you might call a co-op. And the thing about a co-op is that everyone contributes because everyone has a stake in the business and believes in the business. They believe in the cause. Everyone is invested together. And so that's why David invites the leaders to consecrate themselves. It means wholly devote yourself to God's work because he knows that they have a stake in building the temple. It's just as much for them as it is for David and his family. And this invitation, this language, consecrate yourself, it's, it's not an accident. It's essential to understanding what stewardship is. It's an act of faith, an act of devotion. It's a, it's a concrete demonstration of our commitment to God. And the challenging thing is that if we don't give, if we aren't generous, what does that say about our relationship with God? Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart is. And so if we can't give God our wallets, if we can't share our PIN number with God, if we won't give him access to our bank accounts, do we really think we can give God our hearts? David gives and he says, I'm all in. And then he looks at at the leaders of the people and he says, are you all in too? So we've got David's problem, a vision for God's kingdom that is bigger than his life. His response, he gives towards a future that doesn't include him. And he invites other people to give to that same future, that same vision too. Because he knows he can't do it alone. Even with as much as he has, it's not enough. They have to partner together to build God's future. And the last thing we get to, and saving the best for last, is David's prayer. And it's a beautiful prayer. Because within it is basically everything we need to ground a theology of stewardship. And the most basic, basic theological principle of biblical stewardship, it runs throughout this prayer. It's a thread that ties everything together. And the principle is this, everything belongs to God. If you, if you understand that, you understand what we're talking about when we're talking about stewardship. Everything belongs to God. Biblical stewardship starts with this core bedrock foundational principle. Everything belongs to God. And David prays, he says, Lord, Yours is the greatness and the power and the glory and the majesty and the splendor for everything in heaven and earth is yours. Everything belongs to God. Yours, Lord, is the kingdom. You are exalted as head over all. Everything belongs to God. Wealth and honor come from you. You are the ruler of all things. In your hands are strength and power to exalt and give strength to all. Everything belongs to God. But who am I and who are my people that we should be able to give as generously as this? Everything comes from you. And we have given you only what comes from your hand. Everything belongs to God. Lord our God, all this abundance that we have provided for for building you a temple for your holy name comes from your hand. And all of it belongs to you. Everything belongs to God. The beautiful irony of stewardship is God is only asking us to return to himself a portion of what he has already given to us. It's like when I go to the corner store with my kids and I buy a bag of M&M's and I open it for them and they start eating and I ask them, can I please have a couple? And their response is invariably, no, daddy, these are mine. That's the human predicament. 
I, me, mine. And I think that one of the most radically countercultural things, the message that the church has, that Christians have in this world where, you know, possession is nine-tenths of the law, and where the majority, over 50% of our fellow citizens, give nothing to charity, zero dollars, every year. It's this notion that everything belongs to God, this principle that everything belongs to God is it, such a powerful witness to Christ in a culture filled with people, a sea of people saying with their lives and everything, mine. And the message that we have is everything belongs to God. And when we get that, when we get that God wants us to, to, to stop living with clenched fists and to start living with open hands, what we get is, is joy. And joy is the result of the generosity that we see in this passage. David issues this invitation to the leaders and they respond with generosity. And, and, and then the text tells us that the people rejoiced. So the people see this, everyone sees this, and they rejoice at the willing response of their leaders. For they had given freely and wholeheartedly to the Lord. And David the king also rejoiced greatly. And in his prayer, David says, And now I have seen with joy, with joy, how willingly your people have given to you. So when we give generously, we receive generous amounts of joy. Joy from knowing that we're in this together. Joy from knowing that everything belongs to God. And so everything we have is is a sheer gift Joy from being able to to build a legacy for our kids and our grandkids, our nieces and our nephews. Joy from blessing other people. Joy from meeting simple needs. Joy comes from giving because giving is at the heart of who God is. So when we give, we, we are living as a people after God's own heart. God's a giver. God gives existence To the universe, God gave a child and a promise to Abraham and Sarah. God gave freedom and a land to people who were slaves in Egypt. God gave them prophets and priests and kings. God gave his very presence at at the temple in the Holy of Holies. And in the fullness of time, God gave his very own son who gave grace upon grace upon grace to a broken world. And who gave his very life for us and our salvation. And then he gave us the Holy Spirit. And then he gave us the greatest commandment and, and, and the great commission. Which is our mission and our vision and our purpose as a people. God gave us all that. Just to reconcile us to himself. Because that giving gives God joy. That's just who God is. And so when we give, we get to experience a tiny taste of that divine joy too. And to me, that's the great news about stewardship. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.